0: Well, we want to take our Bibles this morning, and we want to turn to Matthew chapter 14. And the question of the day is, uh, does God always rescue? Does He always do that? I mean, I said last week that when I've been in the path of blessing with God, when I've been in the will of God, God has never let me down. We've sang about it just a few moments ago, that God will never let you down. And yet you think to yourself, well, of course, I mean, He's God. The Bible says He'll never let me down, so I've got to believe that. But in reality, maybe you were sitting here just uh, last week and thinking to yourself, well, pastor, maybe he's never let you down, but I feel like at least he's kind of let me down. I just don't feel like he's answered my prayer, like, like I wanted it answered and when I wanted it answered. And now the time has passed and I just don't, I just don't know. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, about, even about those that are involved in the Memorial Day celebration about their family members. I mean, here's guys gone gone off to war. They're trying to do the best thing that they can for our country, and they end up losing limbs or even losing their life. What about them? You know, what about uh, the different people that have uh, suffered all during the times? In fact, look, look back in the book of Daniel. And some of you that are familiar with that story about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Here they go into the fiery furnace, but just before they did, They looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know, God is well able to overcome this and rescue us from the fire. But even if, even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship you as Lord. Well, it opens up the possibility, even if, what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't really come through just right for us? It's, it's as though we're experiencing a vertigo on a spiritual level. Now, how many of you ever been through physical vertigo before? I mean, this is a younger crowd. Man, the last crowd, just everybody just went up. You know, I guess the older you get, you know, the more you experience, you know, the imbalance... And, uh, and so I'm talking about you've experienced dizziness and things like that w- without any substance in you. Any, anybody here, you know, besides me? I, I've experienced uh, physical vertigo before, so bad, in fact, I had to go to the hospital and uh, get some fluids into my system. My brother-in-law, uh, just a couple of years ago, after years of being in the ministry, had to step aside from the ministry because he could barely stand up because of the vertigo that was going through. Now, I, I studied a little bit about vertigo, and I, I've discovered... That the reason why we go through that is that our our brain cannot process whether eyes are seeing. And I wrote a whole book about this and I, I won't talk to you about it much this morning or promote it or anything. I'm just saying this in Forty Five West. If you've got a copy, you need to read the thing. It'll help you, really. I, really, I reread it myself sometimes from chapter to chapter. It's encouraging to me. And I wrote it. I ought to know it, but I don't, I don't know it that well. You know, it's been a couple of years. But if you don't have a copy, I encourage you to get one. It'll encourage you. But I talk about spiritual vertigo and how a spiritual vertigo says that your faith cannot process what you see, hear, or experience. I mean, you know what the Bible says. And you know what you ought to believe, but then there's how you feel. You just don't feel like God always is rescuing you. So what do you do in, cert- in cert- situations like that? Well, in Matthew chapter 14, we find exactly a situation like that in the Bible. After all, we've got to deal with this issue. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, that meant, you know, he was his cousin. He is six months older than Jesus. And his job was to go in and preach a gospel of repentance to get people ready for the Messiah, the Christ, to come. Now, that was his job, and he did it well. And at the end of it all, he lost his head. And he was a very young man. He was in his early 30s. What about about John the Baptist? What happened to him? Why didn't God come through for him? How can we respond to something like this? Well, when you and I go through spiritual vertigo, and when we feel like God's not rescuing, we have struggles in three areas, doubt, opposition, and purpose. And all of them are right here in this passage based on the three characters that we find in this story. And as we look at it, I want us to read the first five verses and discover the struggles that King Herod had are struggles that you and I have. It says, at that time, verse one, Herod the Tetrarch, who was also Herod Antipas. In history, that's what he's called. And uh, the Bible refers to him in the book of Acts as that as well. He heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, why would he be afraid that John the Baptist had come back from the dead? Well, we're about to see this because in verse 3, it's, it looks back. It looks back a little ways, a few months, at what happened to John the Baptist. It says, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, actually his wife at this point because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. What well, we see in these verses, a little story about Herod Antipas. Now Herod Antipas and Herod the Great are not the same guy. It, Herod the Great was really, he wasn't a king either. Neither one of these guys were really kings. They just called themselves that. But they weren't really kings, but King Herod was a very, uh, Herod the Great was a very powerful man. If you remember the story about Jesus being born and him sending the wise men, he said, look, wise guys, as soon as you find this Jesus, I want to know about him so I can come and worship him. And you know what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus, he was afraid, was going to take his throne. And so when he found out that he was fooled by the wise men, he killed every male child below the age of two to take care of the problem. Bigger, and he would cover the bases, and Jesus was still in his area. So this is how bad Herod the Great was. Well, by this time, he had died off the scene, and he, dis- he had divided his kingdom up among three of his sons. One of them, Herod Antipas, was the king or the, uh, the leader, you might say, under Rome over Galilee and Judea and the surrounding areas. And so this is a different guy, and here we find that he was, he was conflicted. In fact, This story is not only told in this gospel, but also in the gospel of Mark. And the book of Mark really does give us a little bit more. It fills in the blanks for us a little bit, you might say. But verse 20 of Mark 6 says this. For Herod Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, here's the thing about Herod. Herod loved John the Baptist's preaching, even though it was hellfire and brimstone, and it was very convicting. He loved it so much and really liked it. The word here means that it was sweet to him. You can imagine. He would send John the Baptist out from prison into the courtyard to preach in order to hear him himself. But on the other hand, he wanted him dead. Why? Well, his wife wanted him dead, for one thing. As Mark tells us, but also he wanted him dead because of what he was preaching. You see, Herod had gotten together and married his brother, living brother's wife, and that was against the Levitical law. And John was the only one to call him out about it. In fact, the Bible tells us in this verse that he continually, continually called him out on that. And he got so upset, he finally um, arrested John and he was under a death threat all the time but somehow some way Herod was keeping him safe. So we look at this and we see that he was perplexed, Mark 6:20. He was troubled, he was he was he had a divided heart. On the one hand, he wanted the message, on the other hand he didn't want the message. On the one hand he wanted the hope and he wanted to somehow please God, but on the other hand he wasn't willing to take the, his hands off his own life in order to do that. And so he was perplexed. He was convicted. He was, he was in doubt. Now, you and I can be in doubt as well, even as believers. The difference between Herod's doubt and our doubt, Herod's doubt turned, in, turned into unbelief. And there, there's no remedy for unbelief except for faith. But doubt is really a part of faith. We, we struggle all the time. One hand, we, we really believe God. On the other hand, how can I believe Him? I believe He's going to come through. I don't believe He's going to come through. I'm thinking one day's one way, one day's the next day. Doubt really is a part of faith. In fact, Jude 22 tells us, have mercy on those who doubt. In Jeremiah, or rather, in Lamentations, a couple of verses I read <clears throat> excuse me, to you last week about great is thy faithfulness and that great song that we sing, that great hymn, and even Do It Again is about, that song we just sang a few moments ago, It's about that passage in Lamentations. Before Jeremiah said that, in the same breath, in the same chapter of Lamentations, here's what he says to God. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. You feel trapped sometimes. Jeremiah did. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. Here we find a situation where the the man is doubting, but yet he's believing. He's doubting, but he's believing. On the other hand, just like us. What causes us to doubt? Well, it's very simple, really. We take our, our eyes off of God and we place them on our circumstances. What do we say about spiritual vertigo? Our faith cannot process what we're seeing, hearing or, or experiencing. We take our eyes off the Lord and put them on to our circumstances. Next week when we begin a new series of messages on defining moments, we're going to be looking at a defining moment of Peter's life where he walked on the water. And really just to give you a little preview. It's like this, as long as Peter looked at Jesus, he walked on the water. When he quit looking at Jesus, he fell into the into the waters, when he began to look at his circumstances, the waves and the storm around him, the waters around him. And so we take our mind, we take our heart off the things of God and put them on to our circumstances of life. Therefore, our fears of the waters around us and the circumstances around us causes doubt. And the doubt causes more fear. In fact, if we were to be honest with ourselves... A lot of what we do in life and a lot of our actions in life have to do with we're afraid of something. I know that's unpopular to say. I've been in counseling situations before where I've just simply said, look, you know, the problem is that what you're afraid of is, oh, I'm not afraid of anything. It's like I'm making an accusation. Folks, I fear too. We all fear. If if we didn't have fears in our life, there's a lot of bad decisions that we just would not make. But we doubt leads to fear. Fear leads to more doubt. You say, well, my problem is then I just don't have enough faith. Well, maybe that's part of it. But you see, the object of the faith is far more important than the amount of faith. You know, sometimes when we look at our fears, we really are determining what is on the throne of our life, or at least what's competing with God for the throne of our life. Our fears because, you know, I I think very few Christians start out their Christian life by saying, man, I I just really want God to bless this, bless bless that. And if he doesn't bless this or that, then I'm going to get mad with him. No, you know, God begins to bless you. Maybe you start out with nothing. Maybe as a young couple here, you, you start out with nothing. You're just happy with one another, happy in Jesus. And then God starts blessing you with financial success. And he starts blessing you with children. He starts blessing you with, uh, with, with uh, just success, period, and, and notoriety, and, and people liking you because of your position. And you, you don't want to lose those. You just don't want to lose all that. Herod had a lot to lose. And if he placed his faith in Jesus Christ... Oh my goodness, what, he would have lost so much or at least risk losing it. And so we don't wanna lose what God has placed in our path. And we fear that and we begin to doubt that. But really, it's, the, it's really the object. We can say, well, I, I'm, I really don't know if I have, let me ask you this. If you're hanging off a cliff and you see a branch nearby and you think, wow, if I grab for this, just jump a little bit and grab for this branch, I can pull myself up and I'll be Okay. But you look at the branch and say, I'm not sure that branch is going to hold me. In fact, I think I'm, it's going to pull right out of the rock, and I'm going, to, I'm going to tumble to my death. And so you're barely hanging on. You're barely hanging on. You, you think, maybe I have 10% faith in this branch. But you, you grab it, and you grab hold of it, and it holds you. Now, I want to ask you something. What held you on that branch, your 90% faith, your 10% faith, or was it the branch that held you up? It was the branch. You see, it's not our our great belief in the cross. It's our little bit of belief in a great cross, in a great Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that's going to help you. Jesus is all about the object. Are, are, Are we trusting in what God has given us? Are we trusting in what God wants for our life? Well, here you have a problem with doubt that ended up in unbelief. But there's other things as well. What about opposition? You know, it's not just enough we have all this doubt on the inside, but we have opposition all around us from the outside. Look in verse 6 of our passage. It says, But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Well, let me give you a little background here. Very few, the only people that danced, these were, these were very seductive dances, and the only ones that did that were people that were professional dancers. The daughter of a king, they would never think about her doing something like this. And it's believed that Herodias herself put her daughter up to this. And you say, well, wow, man, a 20-something-year-old. No, this daughter was somewhere between the age of 12 and 16. So we're talking about some really bad stuff here. And her own mother put her up to that. Why? Well, because of the next few verses. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oath and his guests. What is he afraid of? He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of his wife. Now he's afraid of his guests. He commanded for it to be given. He made a bad decision based on his fear and doubt. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. What, what's this all about? What would possess a mother to do this? It's because she was angry. What would possess a man to forget about his conviction in his heart and do the wrong thing? Folks, we're in spiritual warfare. There's there's the devil on the outside. Now, I know that's an unpopular thing. Some of you are going to school. Some of you are professors, and you don't, you know, it's just hard to go along with that kind of thing. But listen to what the Bible says. It says, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he devours them through the battlefield of the mind and the heart. Ephesians 6 says this, Paul says, but put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Andrew DeBlanco in The Death of Satan talks from an atheistic point of view, very liberal point of view about how we have given death to Satan. We don't believe in him anymore. He says, we, we write everything off to this or that or the other and you know we just we, to the, the idea of there being a personal devil is just intellectually ridiculous. But he said this, I've come to the conclusion, he says, that you cannot explain the evil and the suffering in this world just based on human evil and human heart. There's something else behind it. There's something else that we just don't understand. 2 Corinthians tells us that the God of this, case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. What can he do? He can take the seed of the word of God right out of your heart. Remember the parable that we talked about a few weeks ago, the parable of the soils. And part of the seed, as you're spreading the word of God, part of the seed falls on rocky soil. And the rocky soil, no room for any root, no topsoil at all. And it says the birds of the air come and, and take it, take the seed right off the top of the soil, top of the ground. And Jesus explained that, and he said, that's the devil come along and taking the word of God from those who refuse to believe. That's the power he has. The Bible tells us he has the power to use others in our life, to attack us, to discourage us, to knock us off our spiritual balance. He has the idea of saying to you, you're not worthy. Listen, when he, you're talking about a battle of the mind, and you're saying, you know, hey, look, you, you know you failed. You know good and well that you a, became a Christian. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He gave his blood to die on the cross for your sins, and you're still sinning? You're just not worthy. How many of you have seen the movie uh, Avengers, the, lad, the end game? Anybody here besides me? All right. A lot more than in the first crowd. Man, this whole, <laughs> this whole crowd over on this side. What, what are you talking about? What are you... Anyway, in the Avengers, um, Thor, who by the way, the first Thor movie I ever saw, I thought to myself, man, I wish I had a body like his. And at last in this movie, he was able to accomplish that, you know, finally, but Thor failed. In the last movie, he just, he failed. And in this movie, he chops off the head of the the bad guy, Thanos, and, um, He's feeling guilty and he just lets his life go and lets his diet go and, and he's wasting his life. And in this one scene where he goes back in time and he's talking to his mom, he holds out his, his hand because if the hammer, the hammer would only come to him if he's worthy. And the hammer came. And he looked, he says, I'm still worthy. Dear friend, that's God's message to you today. You're not worthy because of what you've done what you haven't done you're worthy because of the blood of jesus christ and because you've been saved by the blood of jesus christ and he died on the cross for your sins and he proved it by raising himself up from the dead and you've received him into your heart you are worthy and don't let satan tell you anything else but he tells you that and you feel bad you feel guilty well i can't expect god to answer my prayer or come through for me man i'm not perfect i'm just not worthy And so we look at this and we understand that we work against ourselves sometimes. It's like the old story and true story about in the Roman times I had the ships and the motor were the rowers and they were all slaves and they were chained. And someone that was an enemy of Rome would come chasing the ship. And if they were unable to defend themselves, they would run. Well, the people that were chasing him, if they caught the Roman ship... And if those slaves were to have survived, they would have been set free. And so here are the task master, masters whipping them with a whip, telling them, row harder, row harder, row harder. And they're rowing against their rescue. And that's the case with us sometimes. We think to ourselves, God, I, I'm not worthy. I can't do it. And, and the whole idea, listen, Satan's MO is this. God, listen to me very carefully. If you don't hear anything else I say today, understand this. Satan's method of operation the same way, same method of operation he had all the way back to Eve. And this is it. God is trying to cheat you. Oh, hey, listen, same day you eat this fruit, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. Listen, God's just after himself. God may be all-powerful, but he's not all-loving. You know, he wants you to serve him in order to benefit him, and therefore, you really can't trust him because he's trying to cheat you. He's trying to cheat you out of a good time. Trying to cheat you out of your ambitions. Trying to cheat you out of money. I mean, he just, that's the reason he wants you to, to give to the poor or whatever. He's just, he's trying to take what's yours. He's trying to cheat you. And we begin to toy with that lie. And it brings doubt in our life. But then, in reality, things don't always work out. Now, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were rescued from the fiery furnace, but it's not always like that. John the Baptist was beheaded. And the saddest verse in the Bible, verse 12, one of the saddest verses I know, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, just the body, and buried it and they went and told Jesus we see a struggle here with purpose our last point struggle here with purpose can you imagine the disciples of Jesus showing up with a head, and taking a headless body of someone they had followed with all hope all hope that same since I'm on the Avengers anyway Uh, that same movie where Thor cut off Thanos' head. Well, Thanos somehow, and I can't remember whether it's past, present, future. I don't know what it was. I'd have to watch the movie again. But anyway, he sees, Thanos sees a scene of the future. That's what it was, the future of his head being chopped off after he'd accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish. And basically, and I don't quote this, but basically he's saying that's destiny. I've accomplished my purpose. It's just over. John had a purpose in his life. And Bible says it's appointed once for a person to die and after that the judgment. But God God had a plan, a purpose, and a mystery for John's life. Dennis Covington has said, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can understand. You see, there's a point to it. And one of the points is, is that God wants to show me, and maybe you too, that I don't know what's best for my life. And sometimes because of that, I've got to wait. I told you last week, I've spent my whole life waiting. Why? Well, because we have a tendency to think, look, God, I I know that you're all knowing. You know all the past, the present and the future. And I know very little, but God, nevertheless, beyond any logic, I might, I know it's not logical, God, but I just want you to know, I know better for my life than you do. That's why when you didn't answer my prayer, I got mad at you. Because evidently, you don't agree with me. And I don't, I, I don't understand why you don't agree with me. Why don't you agree with me, God? Because I mean, after all, I know best what's for my life. I know how my prayer ought to be answered. I know how my life ought to end up. I know what the next steps ought to be in my life. I just know that. And, and since you're not answering those prayers, then you're disengaged somehow. You just don't really know. God says, look, I'm going to make you wait because I want you to realize that I know what's best for your life. You see there's a point to it. And and one of the points might be that God wants you to mature in Christ. The Bible says in James, "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. Why would you want to rejoice? Because he says, "For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete that is mature, lacking in nothing." You know and I know that trials, even in our present life, regardless of the spiritual aspect, build maturity in our life. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the old butterfly cocoon illustration, everybody knows this one, I guess. But the whole idea is that the butterfly struggles to get out of the cocoon. And in the struggle, his wings begin to get strength. And that's how the butterfly is able to fly when he finishes his struggle. And if you were to take a cocoon and open it up and help that butterfly, I mean, that's poor butterfly, man. It's just, it it needs some help. Let me give it some help. So you open it up and it crawls out, but it'll never fly. Don't we do that to our kids sometimes? Oh, let me talk to your teacher. Let me talk to your coach. I mean, after all, the idea of a perfect team is the best eight players are on the field and then my son. And then you, you open it up and the coach gets his. And then let me try to get you in the best. In fact, let me do your homework for you. And pretty soon you open it up and the child gets out and they think, oh, you know, he didn't struggle at all. I, I met his every need. I'm the hero and everything. But he never flies. He never flies. Well, God's smarter than we are. And he knows that we need the trials in life to surge forward, to be the best that we can possibly be. God is doing something in our life. But you know, God is also working through us as well. Life has just a rippling effect. And it's not only that God wants to grow us and grow our faith, but he's also wanting to grow us in ministry. He wants to accomplish a purpose for our life. The Bible says that God has a plan for our life. Jeremiah 29, 11 says that the, this, the plans I have for you are not for evil and com- calamity, but to give you a future and a hope. God has a plan for our life. And so therefore, when that plan is accomplished, we have a rippling effect. It's like throwing a, 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 a rock in a creek. It has ripples that goes on. I know that uh, somebody here may be has been maimed from war. And we'll just say this young man loses his leg. He goes into a hospital. And one of the doctors there comes, or maybe one of the patients right beside him who lost an arm, begins to share Christ with him. And the young man missing the leg receives Christ. He goes on to another hospital for rehab. He leads the nurse to the Lord. The nurse then has a couple of children. One of them becomes a pastor. Another one becomes a missionary. They begin to reach hundreds and hundreds of people for Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't, I don't want to put any kind of words in, um, in Mark Rick's mouth. I've heard his testimony as best as I can remember. Basically, this is it. You know, he's a former coach of Miami Hurricanes, uh, University of Georgia Bulldogs. Had an effect on a lot of people. He was mopping floors after college. Cleaning up in a restaurant, don't going nowhere in life, didn't know what he was going to do with this degree. When Bobby Bowden gave him a call, said, I need a coach. And so he began to be, a, I think, an assistant on there, stayed there 14 years, I believe. Was finally the offensive coordinator, but Bobby Bowden affected everybody in his life. What a man of God. And he was, he affected Mark Rick's life. He began to really grow as a believer in Christ. He became the, um, the coach of the University of Georgia. He had people like David Pollock, works for ESPN, received Christ during that time. You have ben, ben Watson. Anybody heard of Ben Watson? My goodness, what an outspoken Christian he's become in the NFL. Mark Rick affected his life. Goes on the Miami Hurricanes, same thing. It's just a multiplication effect. I love the story of a guy by the name of Kimball. He was, I don't even know his first name, but he was a shoe salesman in Chicago back in the 1800s. And he looked around his neighborhood and he said, you know, these kids, nearly homeless, some of them are homeless, they need to know about God. So he started a Bible study right there in the neighborhood, right there on the street. One of those young men was named Dwight L. Moody. He's named Moody Bible Institute now. Moody became one of the greatest evangelists during the second great awakening in America then he goes overseas in in England and and the surrounding countries and he was more popular there than he was in America and one of the guys that was affected by his ministry was F.B. Meyer F.B. Meyer was a pastor and he got saved under Dwight L. Moody's ministry, man it's always good to have a saved pastor, I've always said that always good, saved pastor he was a pastor already he got saved Well, he led a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham to the Lord. He was called to the ministry. He took off to America, began to uh, become a young evangelist. Meanwhile, in Montreat, North Carolina, they decided to have a citywide revival, and they invited a fellow by the name of Billy Sunday, who was a great the great preacher of the early 1900s. And he came into Montreat two weeks later. Hundreds of people getting saved in that city. So we want you to come back one more time, one more time. He says, no, I can't come next week. I, gotta go. I have another place to go. But he says, I tell you what. I know a young guy that God has really his hand on. His name is Mordecai Ham. You call him. So they called him up. He was there the next day. A couple of days later, they, they kept really going right along with the meeting. That week, only one guy was saved as a teenager by the name of Billy Graham. Started out with a shoe salesman and ended up not only with somewhere along the line with one of the greatest evangelists of all time, Dwight L. Moody, winning hundreds of thousands to the Lord to someone ending up winning millions to the Lord and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied many times over. We have a a young lady in our church going through a lot of uh, physical uh, maladies for many years, and she needed something to uh, boost her immune system. And because of the uh, insurance problems with the doctor not doing things right, whatever, uh, they they came to a place where they couldn't get the medicine. But it was put out on social media in the church, and one person in the church knew somebody. And they knew somebody else, and they knew somebody else. Somebody else knew a congresswoman who knew a doctor, and they got the medicine. Amen. And her husband reminded me, and said, I, I guess it's true what they say. You're six people away from knowing everybody in the world. If you're six people away from knowing any, everybody in the world, then doesn't it stand to reason that you're six people away from influencing Everyone in the world for Jesus Christ. Amen? You don't know the rippling effect. Your injury, your sickness, your loss is going to have in somebody's life. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know the future. I I know very little of the present. I'm not smart enough to know that. But I am smart enough to know I need to trust Christ. And I hope we all are there. Now what do we do? Because I got to close this message. Listen faster. You've got to do three things real quick. You've got to look inside you. Don't be like Herod. He never did the introspective. You know what happened to Herod? At the end of our story here in a few months, when we look at the the passion of Christ, Jesus went before Pilate and Pilate said, hey, look, you need to go talk to Herod. You're out of my jurisdiction. Go talk to Herod. Same Herod, same Herod that was under convictions. The same Herod that, that was torn and divided heart between what was right and what was wrong was the gospel and what was his own way. His doubt, his fears. A couple of years later, no more than a couple of years, Jesus Christ Himself stands before him and he mocks him. Show me a trick. I want to see a miracle. Take him back to Pilate. Tell him I find no pleasure in him. No conviction. He had his point of opportunity, but instead of looking on the inside, all he could do is look at what he was going to lose. And the seed of the word of God was taken out of his heart. What's inside? What what is God doing in your life? What is God trying to do? What is he trying to show you? What, What fear do you have? Because whatever fears that you have is what is competing for Christ on the throne of your life. Look inside then. Be very careful that you look behind you. So I don't want to live in the past. No, I I challenge you to live in the past to a certain way. Because the thanksgiving that you have in your heart is going to change the way you look at life. See, faith is standing in transit, as one author put it. Between the no longer and the not yet. and the Old Testament, when they were looking to God and saying, God, I want you to do great things and, and conquer our enemies and save Israel, the first thing they would do is praise God and thank God for what he had done. Why? That builds faith. God, look what you've done. You've, you've saved me and you've saved my, my children. You've given me children and, and you, you've given me a life and you've given me a home. And God, I'm born in America where I'm free and we can think of all kinds of things. This answer prayer, oh, I forgot about that answer prayer. I forgot about it. Why would you forget about it? Because we're always looking to the future and what God is going to do for us next. We're always looking for what we lack. Let me give you a little marriage um, statistic. I was reading, in fact, I've read this several times, where counselors will tell you we all like about 95% of the things about our spouse. Even those who divorce. It's the 5% that drive us crazy. All right. 95%. Why do we do that? Because instead of concentrating on the positive, we want to concentrate on the lack. It's the same way with our Christian walk. God, I know you've given me this, 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 and this, but what about this? God, this is what I really want. And God gives you that eventually. And you know, you just file it over here and forget about it because that didn't satisfy either. You, But but God, if you just give me this, then that'll satisfy. No, God gives you that, and you slide it right back over here and forget about it again. You look at what God has done for you in the past. As Colossians 1.12 tells us, giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the Son. Listen, if you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than six million who will not survive this week. You have never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation. You are ahead of 500 million people in the world. If you attend a church meeting without fear of harassment, arrest, torture, or death, you are more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the people in the world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, spare change in a dish somewhere, you are among the top 8% of the wealthiest people in the world. What in the world do you have to be that grateful for? And more than anything else, if Jesus Christ lives in your heart, think about... all the false religions in the world. Think about you could have been born somewhere else. Think about the fact that you could be one of the Americans that have heard the gospel over and over and over and over again and said, no, you've been saved. Your ticket's been punched for heaven, and because of that, you can look ahead. You can look ahead and, and realize that Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Oh, man, it's going to be so much better in heaven. This is the worst hell we'll ever experience as a Christian. Heaven's going to be so much greater. And one day he will rescue us from even the presence of sin in our life by taking us there. Now, what about you? What about you today? Can you say with the writer of Lamentations, Jeremiah, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? His mercies never, listen, never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Can you hope in him today? You can. You can. But maybe there's someone here. I believe there is. Maybe many that have never received Christ. And so your doubt, you doubt, you doubt, but your doubt is is turning into unbelief. And once that happens, you'll be like Herod and just never have a desire for it again. You're doubting, but even in your doubt, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, you believe he rose again on the third day for you, you can be saved, born again, become a Christian, however you want to put it. You can do that. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you call on him today? Would you do that? Would you hope in him? With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning, I want to challenge you to pray with me. If that's the prayer of your heart, that you want Jesus to come and live inside your life and to give you that hope, that hope of the future here on earth and the future in heaven. Pray with me right now. Lord God, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me. I believe that. I believe that you rose for me on the third day. And I want to grab hold of that limb. I want to trust you as my Savior and Lord. I do that now by calling on you, by asking you to come into my life and heart. Be on the throne of my life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.